So come, whether you have much faith or little, have tried to follow or are afraid you've failed. Come because it is his will that those who want to meet him might meet him here. Welcome to From the Narthex, a podcast about faith, life, and Anglicanism. This is your host, Ryan. And today on the pod, I have with me a special guest from the Episcopal Church, uh, the Reverend Dr. Chris Corbin. Uh, welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be on. So, Chris, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about what your current role is in the Episcopal Church and uh, kind of, I think you have an upcoming move, but just uh, to explain kind of your context for our listeners a little bit. That's right. So I am right now the Canon to the Ordinary for the Episcopal Diocese of South Dakota. The Canon of the Ordinary basically is the bishop's sort of number one assistant. Um, I'm responsible for doing congregational development, for formation, and for deployment slash transition. So people looking to come into the diocese, looking people looking to go out, I oversee that work. I have recently taken a call as the priest in charge of a parish in Wisconsin, that, the Trinity in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which I'm very excited about. And that's a position that will likely yield my becoming rector of that congregation as, uh, you know, assuming that the relationship stays good there. So that'll be studying just a couple months. Um, and that that's probably pretty self-explanatory for folks, but if you're not aware, sort of priest in charge rector is more or less the, the, you know, senior pastor at a Episcopal yeah. church. Yeah, and here in here in Canada, uh, for some reason, we moved away from using the word rector and we use the word incumbent. So, if ah, uh, for okay. our listeners, they might have heard incumbent. That's essentially what what Chris will be once everything, once the dust clears, I suppose. That's right. Yes. All right. So, uh, one of the things that we try to do with this podcast, Chris, is get a bit of a tapestry of how people understand what faith is. Uh, so, I suppose mm. we could open up with just asking you. When I say faith, what does that mean to you? Yeah, I think that it's at its most basic level, faith for me is most synonymous with something like trust in. So if I, uh, I have faith, um, even if I were to say something like I have faith that something will happen, that really, that's really to say that I, I trust that that will happen. If I if I say I have faith in someone, I trust that that they will do particular things. You know, it's 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 generally directed in some direction. Um, th there's I, I think that faith is not something abstracted from particular goals or ideas about um, what people can do. Right? You you don't generally just have faith in someone in general. Um, you have faith in some quality they have, right? I have faith in someone's goodness, which is to say that like you trust that when good is needed, that person is going to come through, right? Um, right. And so I guess that also comes down to it's it's generally a, a positive sense, right? Um, I, I don't I wouldn't say that I, I have faith in, someone's failings or someone's negatives. And so so when we take this sort of, I think that this applies as well to God as well. When, we, when I say that I have faith um, related to Christianity or to, to God specifically, it means that I trust that God is going to do what God has said. I trust um, 
that God will provide good for me and for the world. Uh, I trust that the the promises that God offers are 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 promises that are true and will will yield what they are are promised to yield. I think that one thing that has often happened in discussions about faith is that there's sort of there's two opposing poles that faith either becomes reduced to just mere belief, that is to say, uh, I mean, it still is trust in a certain way, right? Because it's trust in the existence of blank, blank, and blank, or trust that right. blank thing is the case. Um, but I, I, I think that that move really guts it of some of the the sort of relational aspect that faith has. It, it, faith is not just bare belief in certain propositions. Like it, it, having faith is not just oh, um, God exists and God is, uh, you know, let's run through the, the various doctrinal propositions. God is three in one. God became human in Jesus Christ. But I think that there's often a problem on the other end where people will um, emphasize trust, 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 trust without realizing that there's still going to be some sort of cognitive or thinking content to that, that, that there's going to be some belief aspect. It's hard to... to have faith in God if you don't also believe that God exists, for instance. Right, right. So the so the um, the trust kind of carries implicit uh, cognitive content, I suppose, or propositional. Yeah, content that's right. Within it, yeah. Trust is trust is more than sort of bare bones belief, but it's not um, other than or or without that bare bones belief. You still have to have some sort of things that you believe in. Um, or believe about in order to trust something, you know, right. I, and I think that this works with, with humans too, right? I, I'm not going to be able to trust that my wife is going to, um, you know, take care of the baby um, if I don't believe that my wife exists. <laughs> that seems like an absurd sure. kind of thing, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But um, I also have to know certain things about my wife, um, especially if that's going to be, you know, if that trust is going to be, not ludicrous you know she has to be someone who is able to um have demonstrated patterns of reliability in in order you know she has to be someone who is willing to or or not willing but who is who is um so reliable right like i believe that my wife is reliable otherwise my my trust starts to like veer into the territory of being irresponsible almost especially when care of others is 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 in play. And, and so I think that this is not to sort of remove, say, and maybe you've talked about this on the podcast before, sort of a Kierkegaardian um, leap of faith into the absurd as sort of what faith ultimately is. I, I think that there is a sense that um, when you get to the level of belief in something like God, um, someone like God, there's there isn't really a good set of reasons one way or the other why you should believe i i I don't i i don't believe that you can rationally prove or disprove the existence of god and so there is a kind of point where you get to this like precipice of reason and you just have to make a choice and of course as christians we we have various reasons for arguing why that choice might be made that often have to do with either nudgings of or or being fully grasped by the spirit that that you can kind of only know after the fact but the the point is is that i think there is still something to that Kierkegaardian notion but 
I don't think that it's the sort of thing where um, we're being asked to sort of put our trust in a person, an entity, a being that is unreliable. Uh, like we're sort of being, we're what's put before us is you can choose to believe that there is this reliable being or not. And that sort of is just something you have to take a leap in, but it's not that the choice before us is, is you have to choose to believe and trust in this being that the, the tradition has said, you know, has historically not kept up its side of the deal. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I especially kind of appreciate the way you've um, shaped this around a kind of a, maybe a, a personalist or kind of a relational account of trust. Uh, I've been wrestling with the work of Oliver O'Donovan the last few months, and um, he seems to suggest there that faith has something to do with kind of the erotic uh, or mm. desire, or he, he, he actually differentiates between uh, uh, eros and desire, which is a kind of an interesting move, but he, um, th this notion that it is a kind of a reaching out, um, yeah. that, to, so, which I think captures some of that kind of Kierkegaardian jump. Like it isn't just wholly a rational endeavor, uh, but at the same time, trust is kind of founded on certain kind of um, proven reliabilities, I suppose. And so right. may, maybe what, what I could, what we could get into a little bit is um, I know for me, like the kind of the problem of evil and suffering continues to be one of the, the places where it, you know, you get a gut check sometimes. So you're like, am I yeah. sure? Am I sure that this is a reliable God? Am I sure that the promises I read are actually reliable? And so I, I'm just wondering, is this something that has, like where in your life have you kind of come across um, some kind of reason for kind of leaning on that trustworthiness? Um, where have you found God reliable? Has it, is that something that's been with you as you grew up or is that something that kind of has happened all at once or? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's complicated as it is, I think, for, for many people. Um, I think, well, what it kind of helps to get at it, this is some, some of the relationship between like belief, doubt, faith, these different, different things. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the question of the problem of evil and the, the problem of suffering and what sort of this does to challenge either belief in God at all, or belief in a particular construal of God, God as good, as just, as, as merciful, these sorts of things, um, as reliable. Um, and, uh, one of the things I've kind of come to see is I think that there's at least two dispositions people tend to have. There's there's kind of people for whom the the problem of evil, the problem of suffering is really sort of the primary thing in front of them. Um, that that for them the the question is less does God exist or not. That's not that's not really the thing that they have a problem with. It's is, is God really good? And then I think that there's other people for whom um, the real problem is sort of existence, right? Does right. God exist or not? And I, I definitely fall much more into that second category. When I struggle with, with doubt, when I struggle with that sort of, um, when I struggle with the issue of, of trust in God, it's at that level of that baseline belief of, is there even a God at all? And, and what I found is that for the most part, 
if I can sort of get over that initial hump, if I can, if I can get to a place of, of sort of not radical despairing kind of doubt, everything else sort of clicks into place for me. But I, I understand, you know, I, I understand and have experienced people who, who have the, the problem with, I, you know, I don't really, I don't really have a problem with whether there's a God or not. I just don't know if I can believe that that God is good or, or, you know, sort of in a human sense, is that God ultimately just impotent and, and defective somehow? Um, or, you know, is that God actually in a relationship with us? Or is it more just sort of this disinterested, either sort of, you know, Aristotelian God of the philosophers or a God of deism or, or you know, whatever it might yeah. be, but, but sort of um, a God that just doesn't care much about the world and therefore doesn't really intervene that much in terms of evil. And I, I, can say to that i get it and i don't really know more beyond that other than sort of some of the 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 traditional responses to the problem of evil um which i I find rather rather compelling actually i mean like i find say uh augustine's account that that evil doesn't really have any real being compelling i find the the account that there is a distinction between natural and, and moral evil, or that much of the suffering that exists in the world is is a response to sort of the um, the sort of the larger fear about what that means about sort of our ultimate destiny, as opposed to the actual suffering in the moment. It, 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 Thomas Aquinas has these sort of interesting explorations of of Adam and Eve, and and talks about how he's he's not entirely clear that they're objective experience was significantly different before and after the fall that but but that what happens with the fall is that the the subjective experience of pain of suffering becomes much more unbearable or Mm -hmm. unbearable unbearable at all because they are sort of like now in a position of of feeling just the normal natural consequences of being a creature against a backdrop of despair over losing that relationship with god Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. It, I think uh, the problem, th- these problems and where you fall down on them, uh, either kind of in your case, uh, does God exist at all? Or I, I probably lean a little bit more on the like, I, I, I have an easier time sometimes kind of believing in some sort of a first move, yeah. but the the kind of the moral quality of that God is the, that's kind of where my doubts always arise. Um, I'm just wondering though, uh, where, um, where your faith in God began. Uh, I, 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 we know each other kind of through Twitter, correct. And uh, we've been kind of engaging on there for about a year now. And I, am I right in remembering that you kind of have Methodist roots? uh, Yeah. I, I grew up United Methodist which is, you know, in the United States, the the predominant um, Methodist body closest probably to the United United Church in Canada, um, which I believe has a, a Methodist um, component to it, right? That the United yeah. Church was Methodist and Presbyterians and Congregationalists or something like that. Yeah, that's right. About 1925, that kind of active union brought those together. And it, so I was just wondering also if you could kind of speak a little bit more about yeah. Methodism, just what it is, because uh, I... I don't know if I've ever actually met a Canadian Methodist because uh, oh, they're no. very rare today. And they, they are in parts of Canada, but in Manitoba, uh, where this podcast is, is recorded, uh, I think pretty much all of them joined with uh, the United Church. So they haven't really been a kind oh, of yeah. meaningful I mean, force the... on, them own, on their own for a long time. 
that is, and it's similar in Australia. The Nineteen Church is is a similar uh, thing. So Methodism, as it, on its own, is a tradition that that descended from the work of. Uh, a few Anglican clerics, mainly Anglican clerics in the 18th century, uh, John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, um, who really emphasized um, many of the things that were going on in the evangelical revival in general. So personal um, holiness, but also personal holiness yielding in, in social holiness, the desire to work for justice and mercy in the world, um, uh, an emphasis on conversion and emphasis on sort of the emotive, the feeling of, of the religious experience. Um, and, and so actually, I mean, there, there's a lot about faith and sort of assurances of faith in Methodism historically that I, I think for better or for worse, and I think it, it, it is sort of a mixed bag for better and for worse mainline Methodism in the United States. And, and I think probably in Great Britain, um, and in uh, the United Church in Canada, it has lost a lot of that real fervor for sort of the 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 intensity of of searching for whether or not you have these sort of marks of assurance, whether you have this um, this real faith versus a, a fleeting thing. Now, of course, one of the diverging points for, within Methodism itself was between Arminianism and, and Calvinism, with the Wesleys falling very very firmly on a. Uh, uh, a kind of Arminianism and Whitfield on a, a kind of moderate Calvinism. And, and Can I just so explain real quickly that what, what that is for oh, yeah. listeners? Yeah, so Arminianism is going to be the belief that ultimately, either through some sort of natural capacity that remains in human beings after the fall, or through the sort of working of the spirit to rein, reinvigorate your, um, your capacities, God offers the choice of whether or not to accept salvation um, in the hands of, of human beings. And so people have the ability to choose or reject the offer of salvation. Uh, whereas Calvinism is going to ultimately say that that's, that's, it's almost sort of absurd to even say that that's a possibility that, that God actually has to be the mover who makes salvation happen all the way down. And therefore um, whether or not you are saved ultimately rests with God's decision and there's nothing you can do about it one way or the other um, ultimately. And, and so that's, that's sort of the, the, the breakdown between the two. I will say that the Wesleys were moderate Arminians. They weren't um, in the classic sort of 18th century uh, non-evangelical mold where they, there was a strong belief in an innate human capacity. The Wesleys certainly believe that no, no, God's spirit has to reawaken and invigorate this capacity in all human beings. Um, so, the, you know, often the, the debates and differences between Calvinism and Wesleyanism or in, in Arminianism get, get uh, blown out of proportion. But it, there are some important differences there, particularly in sort of the nature of how much those, those feelings of assurance and that nature of faith is really like your work or not. The, the, the Calvinists are going to tend to say, we can sort of search for these things, but if they're there, that's because God has, has given them to you. It's not sort of something that you're well enough yourself. Whereas the Arminians are going to be more inclined to say that there's some cooperative aspect here. We can do things to sort of mechanically bring these about in ourselves. Right. So you grew up uh, in this kind of 
mainline Methodism. Yeah. Um, but my engagements with you have been, well, you're actually quite evangelical and you seem to uh, really kind of take this, these kind of like personal piety moves uh, fairly yeah, seriously. Right. So is that, was there some sort of that latent still in your Methodist upbringing or is that something that's kind of come about? Well, I recently? think so. I think so. Absolutely. So, I mean, one thing that, that sort of has been, um, I think a focus of Methodism, regardless of what kind, is a pretty strong sense still of like personal holiness that they're um, that we that we want to grow into and live as people who are seeking after the the full stature of Christ. That that's that's something that at least for people who are relatively well embedded in Methodism, that notion of sanctification of being made holy is still very important, even if it tends to be more progressive, not not progressive in a political sense, but progressive in a sense of taking time. Right. Of unrolling over time. Um, th there are certain holiness traditions that came out of Wesleyan Methodism that tend to focus more on sort of these instantaneous points of being made fully holy. Um, but that th that is still a, a pretty significant part of, of the Methodist milieu. Uh, and so what I can what I can also say about my my growing up is that I um, I struggled pretty significantly with that intellective doubt, that intellectual doubt, primarily in high school. Um, mm. and, and I actually, I think I wonder if some of that came out of a, a kind of crisis of um, having had a kind of moralistic therapeutic deism in a, is sort of like as the, as the default around me against then um, a, a kind of rhetoric of intensity of piety from from growing up around a lot more Southern Baptist. So, I mean, I, I grew up in Florida, which is, um, despite my strong Methodist family, um, everyone around me, regardless of what their church said, was some kind of Southern Baptist. And so you got, right. you got this pretty strong <laughs> evangelical Conservative evangelical, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, but even then, I mean, noticing sort of this moralistic therapeutic deism, which for um, for those who are not aware, this is a, a a term that sort of come into vogue in certain Christian sociological circles um, and then picked up in theological circles of late to refer to this trend in um, in American and, and I would say Canadian and probably British uh, yeah. sort of mainline-ish but largely middle class um, and upper class Christian culture where it sort of you lose some of the, the, or most of the specifics of Christianity, you lose a lot of the emphasis on, say, uh, atonement or on Christ making us right with God. The specificity of Christ goes out the window. God becomes sort of um, variously described as a cosmic butler or um, sort of a wish dispenser. And that, that basically, if you're pretty good, God will reward you by letting you go to heaven and giving you a relatively good life. That that's sort of that's what it, it ends up boil, boiling down to. And I think that there was there was a lot of that with with some evangelical hellfire threats put on top, but there but you still even lost a lot of like the specificity about relationship with Christ and per, like the, despite the 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 stereotypes about evangelicals having such a strong emphasis on this personal relationship with Christ I it was really more strong personal relationship with um moral exhortation in order to avoid hell and 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 attain heaven there wasn't actually a strong emphasis on Christ and so I, I think that the sort of therapeutic moralistic deism which doesn't really emphasize a personal relationship it doesn't really emphasize a um cultivation of of um, God as the end of human life. 
um, but instead sort of just avoiding hell and, and gaining heaven when you die as the end of human life. This, with some of the sort of like absurdity and my, my growing political um, uh, liberalism, progressivism, led me in high school to just sort of say, I, it doesn't seem worth it, worth my time. I don't know why I continue to claim I believe this other than just because I've always gone. Um, right. It's something that I was expected to do. But I've actually come to be quite appreciative of that um, because part of what actually brought me out of that that sort of teenage uh, angsty, my, I call my, my secret silent rebellion because uh, I never told anyone except for my peers that I was an atheist um, in high school, but it was sort of this thing that I held and I was like, but I know it. Um, and <laughs> I, I, um, I, I think I ultimately came out of it because I couldn't like shake the habit no matter, like, no matter what, I, I couldn't ever sort of like get into the habit of being a truly secular person. I, I just was someone who went to church and I was someone who did this stuff. And, and so while I've, well, I've come to really have much more appreciation from the tradition for this emphasis on actually trying to cultivate a personal relationship with God, cultivating a, a, um, cultivating a, a piety that is that involves a lot of um, individual prayer and meditation. I don't think I ever would have gotten to a place where I could do that if it hadn't been for this sort of underlying sense of, well, you can believe whatever you want, but you're going to keep going to church, Chris, because that's what we do in this family that I sort of got from my, my Methodist uh, family doesn't hurt that my dad was a pastor. And so it was, it was sort of expect that was just expected. That was something that we would do. Um, it, it, it also, interestingly, I, I have a strong suspicion that like when I go around to do church work, various places. And one of the things that people always say is, well, how, how can we keep our kids? You know, our kids don't go to church anymore. Our kids stop going to church. Our grandkids stop going to church or, or, or whatever it might be. How could we, what could we have done different or what could we do different to keep them coming? And the number one thing I say is, well, don't give them, choice <laughs> that, yeah. that um you know don't punish them for don't punish them or make church a punishment or anything but just make that a family expectation that we as a family we go to church and we're going to go to church all the way through um the, as long as you live with us um doesn't matter whether you have a car or not but just in in this this might seem sort of like roundabout but i do think that this actually gets back to the question of faith which is to say that faith has cognitive components, but you're not thinking those things most of the time, right? It's It really is more about cultivating this disposition of what I've come to see is, yeah, when it comes to my mind, I have to sort of make this decision of, do I still explicitly affirm the belief or not? But faith more often than not is, oh, I've got to wake up this morning and I don't really feel like going to church, but I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I, I relate to that so much. I, the, the best piece of advice I was given before I went off to uh, Bible college was to find a church and like yeah. go to it regularly. And I've done that and I'm like halfway through a PhD now. And there are so many times when I could have just walked away from this whole thing, but for the fact that I was still going to church and I never really stopped yeah. going to church. And actually the, the hardest thing about this pandemic has been like not being able to kind of do that act of, going to church like yes i'm i'm obviously still involved in church i'm doing online church i'm doing all these things but that that kind of routine of of going to church and like having to kind of like take that inconvenience in my week was something that like held me through a lot and uh i've kind of missed um this year for sure 
That's absolutely right. Well, and I think that it's telling that it it is a discipline that I do think, I mean, I think that there are positive benefits to being a active religious person who is committed to this, they go beyond sort of just, you know, streams of living water and eternal life and all that. I, I think that I think that we we benefit from um, living into what God has created us to be, which is to be in relationship with God and to be in relationship, proper relationship with each other. Um, I think we begin to benefit that psychologically, sociologically, um, interpersonally now. But I don't think that we necessarily like with other things that are related to health, whether that's eating healthfully or exercising regularly or any of these other sorts of things. That doesn't mean that every time you do it, you feel those benefits or that there aren't short-term higher pleasure things that you can do um, that are going to tempt you away from it. I mean, like, right. So like with eating well, I could, I could eat probably um, a gallon of ice cream every day <laughs> and it would feel yeah. really nice that while I'm doing it, it would feel much nicer than eating most of the things I need to eat um, and should eat in order to, you know, keep my, my inchoate low blood pressure down and, and keep me, keep my sort of genetic pre, um, predisposition towards, uh, towards um, unhealthful weight gain down. But you don't see, you only see those benefits from sort of like reflecting over the long term on the um, sort of the general state of increased well-being that you have, rather than the immediate sort of hit of fat sugar, right, that you get yeah. from eating the tub of ice cream. Yeah. Um, and I think it's similar with church is that you, you're not going to normally be able to just sort of like, well, or I should say, I think this is one of the problems with people for whom religious experience is only about having an emotive high. I think it's all right to have those sometimes in the same way that it's all right to sometimes have ice cream. But if that's all that you're getting out of it, it it's not going to be a sustainable thing. And you're probably not going to be able to do that sort of reflection over the the sort of like long course of 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 years and say, I am better off overall. Like my general disposition is better. My I'm generally becoming holier it's going to be just about those i really i'm chasing that next that next emotive high um which is not to say that really exciting worship can't um have its place in the tradition i think it can or that it can't be a sort of a good entryway for people um but it, it needs to the focus needs to shift at some point towards okay but what are you doing in terms of actually building this relationship with christ part of which is you becoming more like Christ. Um, and and that that's, the, that's the thing I say, you know, I think often in certain evangelical circles, relationship with Christ is not actually a relationship with Christ. It's a um, relationship with a particular sort of constellation of emotional highs that you call Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And, you but know, there's it, not, there's uh, not the reciprocity. It's all, what is, what, is, what am I getting out of this? That's right. It, it's striking how many mystics and others, they really had one religious experience. And so the rest yeah, that's of their right. lives kind of like uh, contemplating it. I, I had a professor once, a very holy man, and he talked about how the back of our college chapel, one time he had a religious experience. And he said, that that's it. That's the only experience yeah. I've ever had my entire life. And and he, he said, that was enough. Um and and uh, he said, I, I get it that other people get more than that, 
but I got one and I'm very grateful for it. And this is why, and then you would always end it with, and this is why you should go to college chapel. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I just also wanted to say like, in terms of this like long spiel I've gone on about like sort of patterns of church going, being able to hold us when we maybe can't muster the emotive or the intellectual sort of um, active will to go and do it, which is actually similar in my mind to how the, the creeds often function is that we say the creeds as a church, hoping that most of the time we can affirm it positively, but sometimes we say it together as a church because we need other people to believe for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's part of like why we do th- do these things together, that it's not just individual statements of belief that we make on our own privately. Um, but I will, I will say also, like, I, I wanted to emphasize that I think belief is really important, but I don't think that belief has to always take the form of positive cognitive assent that we are actively thinking about. I think that, that belief is more about an orientation towards the truth. So I think people can struggle with the affect of doubt, right? The feeling of doubt, which I mean, I think when we say that, what we really mean is a kind of anxiety about whether or not we, whether or not the things that are in our head are true. People can struggle with the, the anxiety of doubt, but want to believe. And I think God counts that as belief. People can like, I think in my case, more often than not, what I mean by belief is that I'm not actively doubting the propositions. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily that I am like it's that I've moved from a place where I sort of was like ruminating on how these can't be true to a place where I just don't think about it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so you mentioned uh, earlier that your father was a minister, and yeah. uh, I guess you've you've taken up the family trade. Did you did you realize a, a so, couple generations back? Yeah, actually. Okay. So my 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 father is a Methodist minister. My grandfather on my mom's side is a Methodist minister, and then her maternal grandfather was an American Baptist pastor. And so, yeah, it's, it's a couple, a couple generations back. So you've made this switch over to the Episcopal church, which is basically the Anglican church for our Canadian listeners. And um, I guess what prompted that shift and, and uh, did you kind of know you were going into ministry? And, and I believe, am I right in thinking that the, the UMC and the Episcopal church have a, full uh communion Not agreement or is that a different communion. methodist okay. we have a interim eucharistic sharing agreement which is to say that um services can be presided over by both an episcopal priest and a United methodist minister but we can't swap ministers oh, okay right yeah so so what uh yeah so what made you 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 obviously followed in your father's footsteps most of the way but you kind of uh veered slightly into the Episcopal Church. And uh, I'd love to hear kind of what what prompted that. And when did you know that you wanted to kind of get into ministry as a vocation? So I had a I had a a pretty strong about as close to a a, an audible call experience. And I was in high school, I for the first couple of years of high school, I was dead set on not doing anything church related. Um, I wanted to be a musician, I was planning on becoming a professional trumpet player. Um, And I remember remember one day when in, in 11th grade, when I was practicing, um, I, you know, one of these marathon practice sessions that I do for like two, three, four hours a day. And I, um, after one of my breaks, I just picked up a a handbook of Methodist colleges that at that point was utterly uninteresting to me because none of them were sort of like 
superstar music programs that my mom had left in my room. And as I was flipping through, I just had this intense feeling that no, actually I'm supposed to go into ministry. I can't, it, there was nothing more to, more to it than that. Um, I know that I'd been kind of primed for thinking about other careers um, and had been going back and forth thinking maybe law or thinking maybe something in international relations. Um, so the, the music had been a little bit unsettled, but never had I been thinking, oh, maybe ministry is the way for me to go. And so I said, I'm okay. Yeah, this is it. This is right. Um, and at that point I said, well, I know what I want to do. I'm not going to like pussyfoot around anymore. And so I decided to graduate high school a year early. Um, I had enough credits to be able to do that. So I applied to one Methodist school in Florida, got in. And as soon as I got in there, I got, I was introduced sort of the possibility of being a, a scholar priest an academic, um, an academic in the church. And that's when I sort of set my sights on going on and doing PhD work eventually, really convinced at that point I was going to get out and teach in a college or, or be really primarily involved in formation. And, and the, the, you know, irony of ironies is that um, I've gone through this sort of circuitous path where I, I actually wonder if my, my main gifts aren't in parish ministry and in congregational development and, the, and that sort of thing. You know, God has a sense of humor in those sorts of ways where I've, um, I, I don't begrudge or, or think that I was wrong in any way, shape or form to have gone on and gotten my PhD or to do the academic research I do. But it, it, the funny ways in which this has all actually led to a historical awareness and a theological awareness for the, the life of local congregations. Oh, but getting back to the, the point about how I became Episcopalian, pretty soon after I um, got to college, I started having just some questions about whether the Methodist tradition was really right for me. I think mostly rooted in the fact that I never knew anything else. Even starting in college, I would or studying in high school, as soon as I got my, my driver's license, I would start going to like midnight mass at the Catholic church or um, when, when opportunities presented for, for, for me to go to Catholic worship. And I was, there was something about the liturgy that drew me. My, um, my parents like to tell the story about when we went to France in 2001, I think it was, yeah, we, we had done a pulpit exchange to Wales and we did a, you know, three day, four day trip to Paris. And um, while we were touring Notre Dame, um, I had just sort of unthinkingly found my way into the middle of a um, mass that was going on and was just sitting there. And my parents, you know, sort of had this, this Jesus in the temple moment where they couldn't find me. I, they didn't have any idea where I was. And I just sort of naturally slid into this. So, I mean, this, this is sort of thing that they like to bring up in terms of my, my liturgical leanings. Um, but then later in, in college, particularly, I started really feeling this yearning for, for trying out some more formal and high liturgical settings. And I, I started attending some Episcopal churches on my downtime when I wasn't, when I wasn't working in Methodist context. Um, I got, I felt sort of like in lust with really high Anglo-Catholicism my first year of, of seminary sort of had to draw that back. But my, my wife, um, who we, when we got, in, we got engaged in seminary and we met in seminary, she was Episcopalian and was ordination track. Well, she was going to this just little, you know, they call it the church in the wilderness, um, Emmanuel Killingworth in Connecticut. And she's going to this, this church as her, her location. It's about as low as you can possibly imagine in the Episcopal church. And, and with, by going there, that's where I ended up as sort of my primary location that I attended church and seminary. I, I eventually got to a place where I just realized uh, it's not just about the liturgy. It's, it's that the Book of Common Prayer has become my native prayer language. 
So that sort of was the the real catalyst moment for me. And so it, I took some more time, almost got ordained Methodist still even after that, uh, really had to do some real soul searching discernment and uh, came back to just being, I say just not in the sense that that there's any justness to um, being a lay person, but I came to, to say, I need to spend some time as a lay person in the Episcopal Church, and, and from there, re-engaged discernment after a couple of years and, and discerned that I was still called to ordain ministry. Oh, interesting. So you had kind of um, started the process of ordination in the Methodist Church. Oh, yes. I was, helping... I was a year away through full ordination. Oh, okay. And like, were they helping you out to like pay for school and stuff like that? The whole... They, they were. And, and I'm not going to lie. That was probably some of the reason I stayed a little bit longer because there was a repayment by terms by... You could repay by service or by cash and I chose service. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, you got to get these things paid for somehow. Right. So, uh, well, that's, that's fascinating. So it wasn't really till you were in seminary that you kind of like made kind of consciously started making that shift. And then did you go straight into that's a right. PhD program? Yeah, I did. Uh, and then, and then, uh, it was kind of, was it during your PhD studies that you started making the move into kind of ordination, preparations uh, in the Episcopal Church, or did they recognize some of your other preparation that you'd done, or how did that kind of process play out for you? Yeah, so the the preparation in terms of education, that was all recognized. There was no problem with that. It's just that there are canonical minimums for how long you have to be in the process, and that um, I, I, I wasn't interested in just jumping right into those either while I was still in coursework or while I was doing um, my qualifying exam preparation. And so I, I did two years of coursework at Vanderbilt in Nashville and then um, did the rest of my, my PhD work in abstentia in South Dakota, moving back because my, my wife and I had just gotten married and um, we did a year apart while I was finishing my second year of coursework, but then um, moved to moved to South Dakota to, to, to be with her. And um, actually, I mean, I found that it was, it was, I think, quite freeing for me. I was able to work at my own pace and I was able to do other things and the school was going to continue to pay me for the amount of time that I was in school. Um, and so it was a, it was a really great, helpful thing. I, I, I think that I probably got a lot more work done that way than I would have if I was in the midst of an academic environment still, um, because there wasn't much else to do. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I did start the ordination process during my PhD, but not while I was in residence in, in Nashville. It was during my, during, during my dissertation writing. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So similar, similar to me in some ways, I, I, my wife and I spent the year apart last year while I was in Birmingham and yeah. this pandemic had allowed me to come home. Uh, so that's been good, but it also has allowed me to kind of restart the whole ordination process again. Um, I think, so I'm mindful of our time here. We've, we're pretty much out of time, uh, but you have your fingers in so many interesting pots and I would love to just kind of get an overview of some of the things you're involved in uh, for our listeners to check out because I've um, found a lot of it really valuable. And uh, so, yeah, just tell us a bit more about some of these other hats you wear. Right. So the the big thing, the big project right now, I'd say is Earth and Altar Magazine. Um, that's earthandaltermag.com. Um, that is the the project the, the thing that sort of takes up the most of my time that is not work related and that has to that 
what Earth and Alter is, is it's an, uh, a regular daily blog that is dedicated to what we're calling inclusive orthodoxy, which is more or less the, the ability to both recognize full inclusion of women and LGBTQ folks in the full sacramental and leadership life of the church, and also be able to more or less say the creeds as in the Nicene, the Apostles' Creeds without crossing your fingers. Um, part of the reason that this exists is that we've, we've sort of noticed a cohort of um, rather online younger um, mainliners, but primarily Anglicans, Episcopalians, and, and um, Anglican Church of Canada, and, and Church of England, and um, a few other parts of the Anglican Communion folks. But, but there are Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians as well who sort of have taken this on, um, who are, have been sort of frustrated by the reigning assumption that if you are politically progressive, you will also then be sort of reveling in heterodoxy and 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 sort of pushing the boundaries uh, theologically, um, which I mean I certainly have opinions about that, but I mean there there are defensible ways to do that, um, or the the idea that like if you are theologically orthodox, sort of holding to the the historic beliefs of the Christian tradition variously uh, interpreted broadly or narrowly, you you must be sort of um, strongly conservative in your social and, and political and economic views as well. And so uh, one of the things that I actually noticed from my um, from my time in the theological academy, specifically with being around theologians, was that there there seems to be not this connection, that, that more often than not, you have people who are relatively theologically orthodox, who also tend to be pretty progressive, particularly on social and economic issues. And, and so this sort of led me and a couple other people to begin really saying, like, where is this space in the public Christian discourse for people who want to say, you either can hold these together, or in fact, um, things that will be labeled progressive social and, and economic and political stances actually can arise out of a pretty, pretty firm, uh, robust commitment to theological orthodoxy. Um, and so after having had some tense run-ins with folks who are kind of particularly on the on the liberal side gatekeepers of this sort of um, idea that no you inherently liberal um, or progressive theological positions and political positions have to go together we said okay well we're not gonna we're, we're gonna stop trying to we're gonna stop sort of like doing public controversy on this and instead we're going to create a, a positive creative space where people can sort of make the case for inclusive orthodoxy both actively in terms of of promoting it but also just in sort of saying we can we can have this place where people can can be this way and talk about Christianity and debate it. I mean, I think that that's really one of the things that I'm intrigued in is that is trying to trying to sort of reclaim the sense that being uh, committed to historic Orthodox positions is not a sort of rigid fundamentalism that says, you know, you're committed to this position and this position only, and there's no way to interpret it. I, I, th I think of like bodily resurrection as one of these things. Um, People, people often will sort of tar it as, oh, that's a this sort of a fundamentalist position to believe in the literal bodily resurrection of, of, of Christ. And I always pull back and I say, but I mean, there's, there's a, actually a pretty significant um, continuum of different positions you can have, um, all the way from sort of 
something really, really close to just like resuscitation that like Jesus was basically the, the same as on his earthly life. And he just kind of got up and maybe won't die now all the way to it's like our bodies are going to be made out of radically different stuff. So radically different that it, it, that body and matter and spirit are all things that really strain at the way language works. And that there's all sorts of positions in between those that, you know, you can believe in a literal bodily resurrection and um, have debates still about whether the tomb had to be empty, th those sorts of things. So that's sort of some of the spirit of Earth and Altar is this desire to open up this space and then really to platform voices the church has historically marginalized because of ace, because of race, age, gender, uh, sexual orientation, um, uh, geographic location, thinking particularly like rurality versus um, urban or, or suburban centers. Um, or ability. And so that's really earth and altar. That's what we're trying to do. And um, beyond that, I, you know, I do doodles of saints that people like to buy on Redbubble. And I, I have done like some infographics and some other design work um, to, to really help make the, the Christian message more accessible to people. Um, really, I think that ultimately, what I've found sort of my role is is as an interpreter um, trying to move between the academy and the the lived lives of, of people on the ground. And that that if there's one sort of central thing that holds us all together, it's how can we make these truly complex and, and difficult to comprehend sometimes concepts and ideas um, more accessible in the sense of how can we remove sort of the, the unnecessary stumbling blocks so that people can have to actually grapple with the, the necessary stumbling blocks inherent yeah. some in some of these ideas yeah you know it's uh it's always I, my, a friend of mine one of my best friends just lives on the block and he's also doing his phd uh by distance at aberdeen and he works at a coffee shop and uh he was just telling me the other day about how you know most of his co-workers are kind of post-christian in some respects a lot of them grew up in more kind of conservative and so they're kind of rejecting a lot of that stuff and they've just never encountered somebody who's kind of like studying theology in a kind of a thoughtful way and they're kind of intrigued by him in, in right. a certain way that like oh like you're not kind of just like uh you know really rapidly one way about stuff you kind of like have some room to hold a couple different thoughts in your head um and so yeah it's it's kind of like it's an uphill battle to kind of get that image of christianity out there because i think that has in a lot of ways been the mainstream right. of of christianity uh when you take a big enough kind of view of the tradition, but we, we get caught up in our locales and in our contexts often. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, before we go, just about this other yeah. project you're part of, uh, the Society of St. Mary Magdalene. Uh, oh, I believe yeah, this is kind right. of a, a lay, kind of like an oblet thing. Uh, if you could just tell our listeners a bit about that, because we yeah. might have some listeners who'd be interested in that. That's right. So this is a uh, society for sort of promoting high church Protestant piety. Um, high church Protestant being uh, sort of, do you, do you kind of jive on the liturgy, but also do you have a strong sense of wanting to have like a, a, a stronger, more intimate relationship with God in Christ and and grow in holiness? That that's And that really, that growth in holiness is the main focus. We, we take our um, inspiration from sort of the high Protestant um, precedents in say the 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 puritan uh conventicles or the the pietist uh collegia or the methodist class and bands but these sort of 
these schools of piety, these schools of holiness that that emerged when people wanted to sort of take their take their Christianity to the next level. And and that's really what we're what we're about is is saying how can we provide um, mutual accountability for each other, provide some discipline for each other that is not um, oppressive or regressive, um, so that we might be able to, you know, sort grow into the the freedom of a Christian, which is the ability to be more and more like Christ and the, the flourishing that we think as human beings comes along with that. And so, yeah, so you can go to ssmarymagmag.com and that, that would give you some more info on what we're about and um, sort of how you can reach out. We, we are pretty small right now and we, th- there's sort of an apprenticeship process that, that takes um, shape where if you want to join, you come sort of as a provisional member for three months to try it out and see if this is really something you want to commit to. And then you commit for a year at a time. Um, one of the things that really, I think, distinguishes us from more Catholic orders is that we we think that it's necessary to constantly sort of re-up your commitment. It's not a, a sort of one and done vow that you make. Um, and so that's what we're we're about. We're really excited about seeing what happens. Part of what I was actually going to say, and this actually dovetails, I think, quite nicely, is that um, one of the other areas I really see myself interest in, in engaging with is, yes, evangelism, but also renewal. I'm interested in in how can we how can we help the the people who are in the church deepen and grow in their relationship with God through Christ in a way that that really leads to to inner transformation, a way that that really sets them on fire for. Um, the, the proclamation and anticipation of God's kingdom in, in, in the new creation. Um, that, that's something that I'm, that I'm deeply committed to. And so I, I often say that for all my, um, all my sort of going on and on about my commitment to orthodoxy and my love of orthodoxy, orthodoxy and, and heterodoxy or orthodoxy and heresy is not the primary dividing line I'm concerned about in the church. The primary dividing line I'm concerned about in the church is whether you believe or want to believe that God through Christ actually makes a real difference in your life or whether God is just sort of an interesting idea that you can kind of take or leave and, and sort of, as long as it's helpful, we'll kind of keep it around. I, I have no time for the latter and I, I, I don't really find that much helpful with deep nitpicking about orthodoxy in the former. That, that's really the dividing line that I'm concerned about. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, we will try and get some of those uh, websites in the in the show notes for our listeners so that they can check out some of those Perfect. projects. Um, and you can follow Chris at Theodramatist on Twitter. Yep. Um, and we'll, we'll get his Redbubble information up there as well. Uh, thank you so much again for taking the time and all the best in your in your new post in Wisconsin. Thank you. This is my profound pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review and rating on iTunes and tell your friends.